0: Welcome to Apollo's Muses, the Covid, Culture and Cash series.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to episode 10 of the Covid, Culture and Cash series of podcasts. My name is David Burgess, I run Apollo Fundraising in the UK, and through this series of podcasts we've been sharing the experiences of arts and culture fundraisers during coronavirus. This episode was recorded on the 1st of September, and it's a bit different to the ones we've done previously, Um, most notably in that rather than one guest, I'm joined by three fantastic fundraisers. So you'll be hearing from Lucy Stone, who runs No Stone Unturned Fundraising, Steph Graham, who is an arts sector consultant and director of Adapt for Arts, and Dana Kahava Siegel, who is a fundraising and management consultant, um, who works both with Adapt for Arts and the Management Centre. And you might remember Dana, who joined me for episode eight. This was recorded after the first deadline for the Arts Council England Cultural Recovery Fund. Um, so if you're not familiar with that the UK government announced a £1.57 billion investment into the arts and culture sector to try and get the sector through coronavirus through to March 2021. The money was distributed through different funding bodies um, with £500 million available across two funding rounds from the Arts Council England one of the things that made this funding round really interesting was that it wasn't just available to um, traditionally subsidised arts organisations, this was to span organisations working across the sector. So it included commercial partners who might not have have previously submitted applications to the Arts Council. To support organisations going through this process, Lucy pulled together a team of 15 fundraising consultants uh, and Steph, Dana and I were all part of that team. As a group, we reviewed proposals and offered feedback, and in some cases we also worked much more closely with organisations, helping them to draft their proposals. Having reviewed so many proposals in such a short space of time, this was a chance for us to come together and reflect on any trends or lessons that we'd learnt from the proposals, and also share our thoughts on the Arts Council England Cultural Recovery Fund process. Lucy, do
2: you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Lucy Stone and I run a fundraising consultancy called No Stone Unturned Fundraising. And for the Cultural Recovery Fund, I brought a team of 15 people together and collectively we looked at 215 bids in not very many days.
3: Uh, Hi, I'm Steph Graham. Um, I'm an arts sector consultant. I was one of the 15 reviewers that worked with Lucy and um, I think I looked at 21 in total that's some of the reviews and then also worked with clients directly on actually writing and submitting a few applications the last of which was submitted at 1 30 a.m <laughs> the night uh, before the deadline.
0: And I'm Donna Siegel. I also work with uh, Steph as part of that for Arts and was part of Lucy's amazing team reviewing bids. I think like Steph, I reviewed definitely over 20, over about three days, and happened to also be organizing an arts fundraising conference during the same week. So <laughs> an exciting time in my life. Like Steph, we also worked on some bids uh, with our clients outside of this, and we are still in the process with a yes. few people of applying mm-hmm. to the second round. So. I'm not quite clear of it yet, but I can see <laughs> like the light of the culture yeah. tunnel.
1: Yeah, I was going to say now that we've had some time for things to settle, but obviously there are still applications going in. But from the last funding round, what were people's feelings about how that went and any, any things you saw from organisations that surprised you?
2: going to say there were definitely some that surprised me that thought that they were going to apply and when you looked at some of their information it was quite clear that they shouldn't be applying and for for different reasons uh sometimes because of the amount they had in reserves sometimes because of what they delivered as an organization and sometimes sometimes they were just too small and this wasn't the fund for them um so i kind of expected people might do their homework a bit more before rushing to do the applications but then I guess that's part of what we're here for is to help people work out what is and isn't right for them.
3: I think it's kind of easier in hindsight now that we've all looked at so many to clearly see when it is or isn't appropriate to go for this fund and I'm trying to kind of remember a time when I hadn't looked at so many and. If it was less clear then, because what I found as well, like you said, Lucy, but kind of in reverse, was that actually there are a few people that Donna and I've been working with to submit one, where I actually didn't think that they were right for it at all. But then having worked on a load, I've actually realised that their case is as valid as some of the other organisations with very, very commercial models where all of their income is completely gone. So it's kind of been a weird one that's grown and changed over time. And I don't know whether that's because the guidance has been unclear. And there's been, the guidance has said one thing, there's different messaging kind of coming out, um, you know, from Arts Council's Twitter account, that's been interesting. And
0: that's kind of accompanied stuff like the whole way through definitely I think there's a lot of press influence as well that dictated how people perceived where the money was going to go to or not before it was even decided and before the applications were in for them to consider about where the money was going partly to do with I think the Organisations that were represented at DCMS level on the kind of cultural recovery boards that were happening uh, Partly to do with kind of hearsays and whispers about Oh, well, this is just going to go to the venues that will be shut till April or this is only going to go to buildings It's not going to go to others Whereas clearly in the guidance it says we're interested in hearing from a wide range whether that's touring companies, buildings, commercial, non-commercial organisations So I definitely think that there was a strong press influence that dictated that some people ruled themselves out at the beginning. But actually, as the process developed, realized that they are culturally significant. They are viable, were viable before and are viable after and are therefore at a very basic level, potentially eligible to apply. So I I definitely think it's something that evolved, though, like you described Steph as the process happened rather than Mm. being very clear from the outset
2: i think that's where there's a number of people to do about round two who had like you said discounted themselves from round one but i've kind of gone back to and said are you 100 percent sure you're not going in because these types of organizations are or here's what we learned or here's what happened as the guidance and the faqs you know evolved um i think it is a fund for you and also there's just that question of What is it you're planning to do over the next six months? And does it fit what they're trying to do with this fund? Well, it appears so. So why not do the bid and let them say no rather than discount yourself before you've tried?
3: Yeah, I've said that to quite a few people. If you can make a case for why you need that money and why that money will make you viable in March and beyond... It's then up to the Arts Council to decide if they agree with that or not relative to the other applications that they have received. They can't say who they will fund and what exactly for until they've kind of got all of them. I assume that they're going to want to spend all of the money or at least as much of it as they can to rescue as many organisations as they can. But until you know what's actually on the table, it's quite hard to determine, you know, who's in, who's out and what type of expenditure is in and out.
1: So if we take it back a step, do you think this was the type of funding the sector needed when we look at what the guidelines set out and and where they positioned this fund?
3: That's a great question. a good
0: question. I'm glad that this is funding from October to March because with the initial responses, from private funders from arts council hlf you know national community fund Mm -hmm. there was a quick and urgent rush to be like okay we need to fund people till september or october and it felt like there was suddenly this cliff edge where it was like okay here is all your emergency funding but only up until this point and suddenly we're here now it's september not that much has changed you know we still need that funding so i'm grateful about it being strategically placed for the next here in the next six months. Having said that, there are huge challenges with this funding because of the minimum restrictions. It's very exclusionary for a lot of grassroots organizations who are probably very dynamic and very well equipped to respond and reopen sooner than maybe other organizations. So that part of it, I feel a little bit disappointed in, I think. But I, am I glad the government released money for the cultural sector? Yeah, absolutely. It it was some recognition that this was important and that it was not as clear cut as falling into the third sector support that they provided back in April. Um, It's just not as clear cut as that because we know Mm -hmm. there are so many social enterprises and for-profit commercial organisations who really enrich people's lives in this country.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think that you know, it depends who you mean by the sector. Is it what organisations needed? Yes. Will it save jobs? Absolutely not. You know, was this what was needed for all of the kind of entry level or casual staff that are employed by the sector? Absolutely not. So, you know, the question has a different answer, I suppose, depending on (laughs) <laughs> what you're looking
1: for mm. yeah
3: there's who...
2: definitely other parts of the, the industry of the sector who are saying this isn't a fund for us you know the, some of the touring companies pa lighting you know those kind of infrastructure organizations that without whom you can't put on a show or an event and we're already seeing some of those closing you know we've had some announced just in the last week some of the biggest companies who do that type of work aren't going to be there when people start touring again. Um, So there's definitely parts of the sector who felt like a cultural recovery fund should have been for them, but this one wasn't. Yeah. And I think the timing thing as Dana says, so crucial, you know, right now we're dealing with the, um, the Scottish venues fund, which is for people up until the end of October. There's no sign of a conversation quite yet about, October through to March and Wales just announced theirs deadline end of September for October through to March. So, you know, Arts Council England is slightly ahead of some of the other nations in that, which definitely helps with people's concerns and anxieties. But I, I'm guessing we're all having a lot of people asking us what about April onwards?
0: i have to say i think it's important that arts council england then responded to to lay out what some of those other options are for other organizations like the fact that they restored national lottery project grants the fact that they will be restoring developing your creative practice which is obviously dedicated to kind of the the freelancers or the independent artists in the sector how the total amount of cash has been divided there are definitely questions about but I think what has at least been helpful is that in conversations that we've had with, you know, everything from individual artists through to multi-million-pound organisations, at least there's a conversation of options rather than just a there's this thing or there's nothing. So it's been, you know, we've been able to say, okay, are you suited to cultural recovery fund? Yes, no. Okay, are you suited to national lottery project grants? Yes, no. Are you suited to developing creative practice? Yes, no. And there's been at least somewhat of a flowchart. Whereas I think what Lucy's expressed really strongly is that there are parts of our sector that provide the infrastructure for cultural events to happen,
3: mm-hmm.
0: who have only had this or nothing because they've never had funding because they've never had any other type of subsidy because they're not eligible for any other funds generally. They're just companies who make their money and create jobs based on selling lighting or makeup or whatever it is that they do for the cultural sector. So that is i think where it is really tricky and how many of those organizations will survive and how that will impact on the organizations that do survive we we just don't know yet and that's that seems a real shame that seems really sad
1: and and do you think actually part of that could have been addressed if the criteria for the loans program was broader because i think there's a lot of organizations that are profit generating working in the commercial sector where well, the issue is more around cash flow than anything else mm. and actually yes it's great you can get a loan beyond 3 million pounds but actually a lot of those companies that probably would have been all they they needed it didn't necessarily need to be a grant I think probably.
3: it depends what your business model was and when you reasonably see a recovery happening if ever And I think that's the scary thing about taking on a loan in a circumstance such as this, you know, in a normal scenario, you take on a loan based on growth that you can predict um, or that you've calculated or forecast, you know, on a set of kind of parameters um, that you're pretty sure will be in place. And actually you'll feel if you can't pay that back, that loan, you know, something's gone terribly wrong or you've been very unlucky in whatever venture you've been embarking on. This is completely different. And I think that there's been a real, you know, people are scared to take on a loan now of all times, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, this is when, you know, the last thing you'd want is a a debt at at the moment. Um, And I think that's been really, um, like playing on people's minds. I mean, I saw in quite a lot of the applications that I reviewed that a lot of the organizations who were eligible for CRF had also been eligible for a bounce back loan and had got a bounce back loan. But one of the things they wanted to do with their cultural recovery fund was pay off their bounce back loan. Because the first thing you want to do when you get a bit of an injection of cash is get rid of any debt so that you're kind of you're you're in a positive Um, financial space going forward but that's not really
2: what it was for Mm. and i yeah yeah i got asked about bounce back loans a lot across uh english fund and now across the scottish fund you know if we went and got a bounce back loan you know, that's sitting as debt. Where do we show that in our cash flow? Um, It shows us as having money in the bank, but we want to ring fence the loan, either to pay the loan back or to do something else. I felt like the criteria for Arts Council was suggesting that those who hadn't exhausted all possibilities may not be successful with that fund. So almost being encouraged to get the loan. Um, did put a lot of people in that kind of back foot, you know, like Steph said, the difference between how, why you normally get a loan and why you're now getting a loan, which is for survival, which is a very, very different thing. But I think in a lot of this process, people needed to get their head in a very different space. So you had that headspace about loans and debts. And then for organisations who hadn't been to Arts Council, never had public funding before, they almost didn't kind of understand the basic concept that those of us who are really used to public funding are, you know, very okay with. Here is the project or the work you want to do. Here is how much you think you're going to make on, you know, ticket sales or whatever income. Here there's a gap. Okay, I'll go and get some public funding for that. That simple process of thinking for these commercial companies was just like I don't get it why would they pay for that why well I can't make enough on ticket sales so I won't do it it's like but publicly funded Mm -hmm. art has always been there to enable you to make up that difference and I think people getting their head into that space that was one of the conversations I had almost as much as the bounce back loan conversation that's what public funding is
0: there for
1: yeah so this discussion has come up a bit hasn't it as to whether commercial organizations were at a disadvantage going for this because they're not used to going for public sector funding but the counter argument being that those who are used to dealing with the arts council perhaps failed to notice this was a very different type of of funding program so do you think it was quite balanced across those two or do you think one sector over the other had had an advantage here
2: oh that's a really interesting question I think they had advantages and disadvantages but in really different in different ways you know those who weren't used to um, this type of funding needed a translator Um, and I can't feel that actually that turns out what we do quite a lot as fundraisers is we translate uh, especially as a trust and foundation fundraiser you know between what the organisation wants to do and what the funders want so I think for the commercial organisations they were it just took them time to get their heads around it but when it came to the management accounts and the cash flow my experience was that the commercial organisations whilst it took them a little bit of time to understand exactly what Arts Council meant by management accounts which is slightly different to what their accountant means they had those finance documents down so much quicker so much slicker um you know so i think there were there was a kind of you know if you kind of balanced it out probably about the same but there were some things you know that your commercial organizations were further ahead on and other things that the non-commercial sector were further ahead on yeah
0: totally agree the two the two best applications i saw that i thought if the assessors are following the criteria these are in the bag one was a commercial and one was a non-commercial So I think it's really interesting. The commercial, uh, the strength came because of the way that they articulated the value for money of the investment for public funding, the way they articulated their financial viability before and after, and the fact that they requested to get to a position of zero by March, not to get to any other position, because they said, we are so confident in our ability to generate income that we don't even feel we need really crazy levels of reserves. We're not going to ask for too much money. So that I think was an amazing, amazing application. But then the strength of the non-commercial application came from the argument of what would happen to cultural infrastructure in that place if that organization was not able to survive and thrive. And because they like the commercial organization really articulated the value for money and the cost cutting measures that they'd taken over the period of time that they'd done and the proposed cost saving measures they were going to do from October to March, which just showed that they were spending every penny really efficiently. So Mm. I think it's, it's the organizations like Lucy said, who have just a stronger financial acumen management, understanding of their organizations were able to communicate it much clearer in the narrative as well even if it wasn't kind of even if that narrative needed a little Mm. bit of rephrasing to go with some of the criteria in the fund so yeah that's definitely my experience that there were advantages and disadvantages to both
3: yeah there's definitely a stylistic difference between how the organizations expressed what position they were in financially and I completely agree with Donna that commercial organisations did really well in that first question of how have you saved costs because they're a business. They're used to doing that. They're used to keep you know being as lean as possible. Um, that that's how they run. Funded organisations aren't as good at that. Um, having said that, the the final question around equality, the answer from to be honest, the majority of commercial organisations I saw was absolutely shocking to someone who has worked exclusively in the third sector <laughs> um, and that has had to um, make strides um, into diversifying and inclusion as part of their funding agreements. Uh, I mean, to have organisations asking for you know £1.5 million of public money and say that they do one International Women's Day event a year, and that was their answer to how they contribute to equality, diversity, and inclusion, was actually at some point, you know, I, I was angry. And it made me realize that actually all of the things, or all the, the sections of society, I suppose, that I feel disillusioned from in general is is because I'm not working in that space where that's not um, something that's talked about every day. You know, these types of initiatives um, around equality are just not something that a commercial organization has to think about every day. They should, but it it absolutely doesn't, you know, uh, mean that their bottom line will be affected, whereas publicly funded organizations have to think about that for all sorts of reasons. So yeah, that was a huge
2: difference, I I thought. So I only read two on that last question about diversity that I felt would actually be graded as strong. I think Mm -hmm. most of the ones I looked at were just trying to get to the kind of MET category criteria. Um, The two that I read that were strong, one was commercial and one was uh, traditionally publicly funded, and they were strong for very particular reasons about how vocal their staff team and board had been about making these things happen. You know, I like to have some really challenged conversations with some others about this is not good enough. Your answer is not good enough with people. You know, I think I told you all, I had one conversation with somebody where there was like, there's no point in doing this equalities work because things never change. To which I said, well, I can vote. So things do change and there are things that all of you can be doing. Here are 10 examples that you as an organization could be doing. That particular person now has he, him on their signature. You know, I showed them a very small thing that they could do to show a quality in their organization and to, you know, help some of the um, voices that perhaps they're not hearing so much in their organization and it's just like in that small example I've shown you exactly why we can make a change and why we need to strive for these things but also I have heard you know some organizations who are based in very rural areas you know very white very middle class saying I'm struggling with this kind of almost like london-centric view of the world and actually for me where we are geographically diversity is about working with working-class people or ensuring that we have a program of women and it was like what well, nobody's saying that diversity has to be safe for everybody it's about what diversity looks like for you but i i think some organizations felt like this was being put upon them from a very diverse london and that, that where they are is, is not diverse and i think was saying well you still need to think about diversity because your community is more diverse than what you're doing
3: also is it a responsibility for an organization purely to reflect their community back at them mm. that's not really what we mean by diversity and inclusion and equality you know we don't need to reflect the area that that organisation's based in in like the cultural offer
2: Um, I think it's more about the leadership that actually if you, you know, if if where you're based is an an area that is 95% white, um, at what point does it become tokenism? At what point does it become something that, you know, isn't what we're talking about inequality to, to demand, a, you know, a board made up of whatever. You know, I believe that representation matters and that you need to strive for that diversity because how do young people or young women or young black people or whoever, you know, kind of looking at something as a potential career or potential place or space that they can be in, How can they know that it's for them if they don't see anybody who is like Mm -hmm. them represented Mm -hmm. there? So I think you should strive for more. But I think those were the kind of conversations that that we were having. And actually, I think it's really important to have those and challenge that and ask that question. And I think it, you know, in many ways, by having that as a question, it's opened up a huge number of conversations that just wouldn't have happened before. Um, And so someone's quite grateful for that question, although, like you said, for many organisations that were challenging, many were struggling to meet a kind of met criteria on that one. But it's public funding. We should be having that conversation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've touched on it a little bit as to some of the strong applications. What were some of the characteristics then of people when you looked at applications and thought, yeah, this is this is strong? Answering the prompts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Answering the
2: prompts. 100%. With facts and figures and not too anecdotal. I think the number of times I must have said something along the lines of, there is a difference between saying our organisation is popular and saying this many people access our work, our venue, our services per week, month, year. put a figure in it you know and also the facts of figures two of the questions were finance questions where are your facts and figures on your finances how is that aligning to what you said in your management accounts and your cash flow you've already done all the work on the finances use that in the answer to your question yeah
0: yeah i definitely found myself getting very frustrated where i could see from the cash flow clearly that it was fine and a decent ask but nowhere in the narrative did they say what that money was going towards and how that was then going to make them financially viable you go, it's exactly what you said it's like you've done all the work like you just need to explain it quite clearly here and actually the majority one of the key reflections i had is the majority of my feedback back to venues and organizations that we worked with was about structural changes you know restructure this this way describe this this way instead where it, you could see that it was there, but there was just a, a struggle to articulate. And I don't know if that's because of just the deadlines or the inexperience of applying for funding before, or whether that was just because people just couldn't see the wood for the trees at that point because mm. they were so in their numbers and they were so in it that they just couldn't explain it very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was definitely something that I found myself getting quite frustrated with going, the arguments there with the numbers, just make it with the words. Yeah.
3: I think yeah, clarity. Like just writing things in a. Think about think about the person who's reading this. I think you get people get so hung up on answering the question or making sure, you know, that they filled it in correctly or whatever that they're not actually thinking about what the person is going to think or glean from from actually reading it. You know, even just basic stuff like if um, you were asked in one of the prompts at one point to tell them the measures that you'd taken to save money. So, right, the measures we've taken to save money have been, colon, bullet, bounce back loan, bullet, some redundancies. You know, making it clear has to be the number one thing because the thing is, like Lucy said at the beginning, the team of 15 of us reviewed 250. Think how many applications the actual funder is gonna look at, thousands and thousands. They're gonna spend about five minutes on each one, at least on the ones that are under 250,000 pounds. It needs to just be clear. And then like Dana said, they just it needs to make sense as one cohesive thing. The, mm-hmm. the, the questions don't get split up and go to different people. Mm-hmm. The questions make up one application along with your finance documents. If those don't speak to each other or make sense as one
0: clear narrative,
3: then you've done something wrong, basically.
0: I think that one of the other big pieces of feedback that we gave a lot, and I think this is a piece of learning for every application going forward for people, is What will happen if you don't exist? What are the negative consequences of you not existing anymore? That I wrote, I think on every single piece of feedback that I gave because it was only done once by one organization who said, the thing is, if we don't survive, here's what's gonna happen and it's not gonna be good. And I was like, that is a compelling argument because we know from human nature that we are driven by things that are negative. we just know that. So yes, it's important to celebrate and show us the numbers and the success that you've had and the artists that you've collaborated with and the partners that you've had, but tell us what it, what vacuum is left if you're not there, because again, this is a competition for funds and you have to find the most persuasive way of making your case. And we know that presenting it that way is the most persuasive way. So when I saw a good one, which was one out of the 25 plus that I saw, who told me this is what's going to happen if we don't survive. I was like, yes, and you've made it emotionally compelling for me as a reader, as an assessor. Suddenly my heartstring was tugged. I needed that because you're then going to make me remember you. So I think that was a really, really important piece of feedback and learning that organisations have to take going forward as well.
2: It's that curse of knowledge thing, isn't it? Where they think that the reader will know that already because they know that so intrinsically that if their venue closes, the nearest venue is an hour on the bus. You know that actually they 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 know that if they close, that's the vacuum that's left. But they haven't said that. And I definitely had that with a few organisations where, when you spoke to them on the phone or you ask them to kind of explain something, they tell you about that vacuum that was created, but yet it wasn't in the bid and it's also oh I didn't realise they'd want to know that and it's like no, nah, that's kind of one of the questions <laughs> that's kind of again follow the prompts that's kind of what they need to know
1: I think most of us as well as reviewing proposals had a hand in writing some as well didn't we so with that hat on what were the bits you found most tricky and were there any bits that you thought actually as a writer this is taking a bit more work to get right
3: Yeah, I think it was trying to make sense of the ask Mm. without knowing what's going to be happening in March 21 and also making sure that you're asking for enough that would see you through to that time and then getting that argument pitched at the right level that the ask amount matches, like I said before, like what, what you're actually writing in the narrative. And I think that that was quite a tricky decision to make for some organisations about what to spend the money on. You know, how much money do you need and what you're going to spend it on? Well, you know, if someone gave me two hundred grand, I'm sure I could spend it on loads of things that could make me more financially viable. But where's where does that stop? And each organisation had to make that case for themselves based on not knowing what anyone else is putting, but just trying to think really hard about what they needed at that time.
0: In tandem with that, part of the thing that I think I struggled with with question two as well was finding a really nice way to make the argument about how you arrived at the decision as to whether you would remain closed, remain partially reopen, or reopen, and why that then contributes to your viability. I think that's with both my reviewer hat and my writer hat on. You know, with my mm-hmm. reviewer hat, I was going, You haven't answered this prompt. Like you haven't explained to me why. With my writer hat, I was going, I don't have enough characters for this. And actually what is a really concise way of explaining that? I I think a lot of organizations slightly overlooked that aspect of the question. And I think actually that's going to be one of the most important parts of the criteria because my suspicion is that, you know, given that value for money is the basis and the foundation on which this criteria is being set, if you're not then explaining why it's a value for money, the best value for money, you're not enabling them to make the best decision possible. And you might get discounted for saying you overlooked this or you didn't explain properly. So Mm. that for me, I think was the part of the questions that made me feel the most nervous and particularly working with subsidized organizations because Mm. a lot of their remit, a lot of their raison d'etre is just making stuff happen for people, for the communities that they serve, right? They believe in the greater good of it like why wouldn't we do cultural activity if we could over this period we have to it's what we do but actually that's not a good enough argument it needed to be made a financial argument so you know are you gonna as a result of that generate more income as a result of that are you going to be in a stronger position to apply for more funding you know what are the criteria that make it a financial decision to do that rather than just something that feels really good to do so that i think was probably my biggest struggle when it came to writing the application.
2: I think for some of them it was about decisions that they had made before the fund was available. So they'd made a decision to close until March for a very particular set of reasons, but now they were kind of laying it out on paper, you know, actually were those who were going to be able to deliver activities from January and get artists back to work and audiences back watching artists, were they more likely to get funded than those who'd already made the decision to close until March, you know, so I think there was a little bit of that kind of second again bit like the loan thing again. They would made the decision to get the loan before this was an option. So I think it's with some of those um, I Was more involved in the writing of them because it was about that conversation. Like, well, we made this decision. Now what Whereas those way where just reviewing them. You're just kind of looking at the result of that decision making um, I think for some people that was a real a real struggle like, you know, showing their working, explaining their thinking, when so many things were uncertain because, you know, let's face it, even this fund was an evolving picture as we were doing it. So not only were they kind of writing their bids based on decisions they'd already made and then questioning those decisions, but the criteria were changing, the guidance was changing. So then they had to kind of rethink those things again as new guidance and criteria, you know, came mm-hmm. out.
3: I think it was difficult as well for organisations to understand, again, this is kind of going back to right at the beginning of this conversation, about what this fund was about. Because actually, if we think about what was coming out of the Arts Council, especially for the emergency funding, paying freelancers was one of the things that they had really stressed that they wanted to see people using their emergency funding. So it just felt so alien, I think, particularly for organisations that are publicly subsidised and have created jobs and are using grant funding to create jobs, to then say, well, we're going to make a load of people redundant. It just felt so so wrong. And in a way, I don't feel like Arts Council or DCMS or whoever actually came out and said, we we want you to make redundancies if it's going to make you more financially viable, like do it just like, don't, don't worry about keeping jobs. I felt like that was quite confusing. And like Dana was saying, you know, there were some organizations who probably could have made a better case for saving money or value for money should they have closed. But like Lucy said, You know, some people had already made the decision. No, we're going to support our staff. We're going to support our freelancers. We're going to try and do something. Our community have said, you know, or showed indications that they will try and support us wherever they can. Therefore, it feels like the right thing to do out of this is to try and stay open, try and do something, keep as many jobs as we can. There's a fund open that can top up our reserves. Let's go for it. And so that was then a difficult thing to try and then fit that into the criteria. I also think that the documents, actually the financial documents that you had to attach, had to show two complete different ends of a spectrum. You know, one of them, the management accounts, had to show kind of desperate need for an injection of cash. And then cash flow had to show with this grant being completely viable and not needing any more support in March 21. Well, Those are completely different things. And if you're trying to do that to get from one to the other in as most value for money as possible and as low ask as possible, (laughs) that's quite a tall order.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did feel like a a sort of weird hybrid of emergency funding to the view of just sustaining organisations in terms of organisational structures at a time where I think a lot of people were starting to look for actually what they needed was that pump priming investment to to rebuild yeah. that momentum and it sort of it ended up being a weird mix of the two i think i think that's where i struggled with with question two of that sort of pleading poverty and yeah everything falling apart when people say actually we just we, we just need help just to get things going again
3: yeah yeah you're supposed to kind of show for being destitute to being completely financially viable in a six-month period for you know around 50 grand you know it's kind of a little a little bit odd I mean, some people, you know, I've, I've seen on social media or whatever have said, you know, would it have been better if people made an expression of interest, even just saying we're interested in no more information than that, and just being given a portion based on their turnover? You know, could, could yeah. something like that have worked, where it's basically just getting money out to the sector without this kind of guessing game?
0: Yeah that's quite interesting. I suppose the tricky thing about that is again why I think they founded the criteria on it being about financial viability before and after is that they're looking for the most efficient use of that fund and they're they're looking for the most long-term success of that funds which is why they have created this process in which they will assess who is the most worthy of getting it because they will spend it the best and survive the longest so i hear you on that i think you know that's definitely an approach that loads of private funders took which i think is brilliant Mm -hmm. um but i wonder if the the more private license enabled them to be more flexible with that funding yeah but it's also
3: what the government did with jobs no you're right it's exactly what the government did with With the furlough scheme and the self-employment grant Mm. scheme they just said you know anyone can apply for a level that was kind of um in line with their earnings or history of earnings
2: i I suppose part of it was about like you're saying that there's no point giving somebody a load of money if they're still going to fall over in april
3: yeah, yeah but that money i suppose still stays in the ecology and that might yeah, have actually helped yeah. um those supporting organizations that you mentioned before Lucy. Yeah, those um, yeah. you know providing equipment or or what have you just an interesting provocation
1: <laughs> so changing the topic very slightly there was a concern raised from organizations when the government made this announcement about this big injection of cash into the sector that it would the knock on effect would be that philanthropists outside of that would say, okay, that problem has been, has been solved. Have any of you seen examples of that coming true with organisations?
3: I think there might have been that when they first announced a 1.57 billion, you know, way back at one of the briefings potentially, but I think each organisation's been, if they're still in trouble, you know, they've been telling that story. A lot of them really effectively, actually.
2: But also once you break down that 1.57 billion to four nations and then you break it down between emergency funds and recovery funds and, you know, once you actually dig down a bit and realise actually how many organisations are going to benefit from this... I think anybody kind of knows the size and scale and scope of the sector who already is a kind of philanthropist or whatever donating in those ways would kind of understand that that's not necessarily going to touch the size for a lot of these organisations i suppose nobody was saying after the kind of charity sector as a whole got a load of money that suddenly it didn't need money And actually a lot of people in the grassroots organizations are saying they still haven't seen that money that money hasn't been distributed so in some ways it's helped tell the story a bit more about the need for the sector because it's a conversation that people are having
0: yeah yeah i i completely agree with that and actually It reminds me of something that Paul Ramsbottom said, who's the Chief Executive of the Walson Foundation. He said, actually, is this a moment where suddenly people are more aware of the value of arts and culture and because for the first time it's been precarious and for the first time it's been emergency-based appeals and actually that on a whole will that over time encourage more philanthropy to the sector because there's suddenly an understanding that it could be lost in a way that it hasn't before where it's been seen as a kind of added on extra mm. thing or a very positive or a very future thing. so i think that that bailout might have the opposite effect and Mm -hmm. stuff is important and that people should get behind it and even if that isn't the case I'm going to say it so it becomes socially accepted and more likely
3: (laughs) surely that value is going to get more and more kind of in our minds as the longer this goes on and the longer that stuff isn't happening you know actually bars are open again pubs are open again restaurants are open Um, you can go shopping, but you still can't go to a gig, can't go to the Mm. theatre. You know, galleries are only just opening. A lot of places that rely on tourism, actually for ticket sales and visitors and things, are still suffering because that tourism isn't happening. And I do think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But now is our chance then to kind of Mm. show how vulnerable, um,
2: it all is but also I think it's about what we valued whilst we were in lockdown you know what did we do in lockdown we all we discovered hobbies we yeah. you know listened to more music we spent more time dancing around our kitchens whatever that was you know and actually what we consumed on online you know Netflix went through the roof you know other things are available, but I watch Netflix, Um, you know, what is behind Netflix? Well, it's the creative industries. You know, you can't have Netflix without a film industry and a music industry and, you know, graphic designers and all the rest of it. You know, actually what did we value when we were in lockdown? We valued things that connected us to other people and, you know, we used to adjust our mood or whatever, you know, those kind of things that actually we went to at this time of crisis still on there yeah we can go out and have a meal but how often do we have a meal around other things yes. you know we went to a gig and we had a meal we went to cinema and we had a meal yeah you know it's all those things
3: yes yeah we've had a whole summer without those kind of memories
1: So, final question then if you could send a message to the people reviewing these applications what message would you want to send them
2: <laughs> I would want to know that they saw the most up-to-date version of the various bits of guidance that came out. <laughs> I would absolutely encourage them to go onto the Arts Council website and, and look at what was on there because it did evolve um, and I think I would encourage them to perhaps have some conversations with people who were involved in drafting bids Um, because not everybody got quite the same message on things so to kind of do a bit of background on that and actually find out what the process was like people writing it we massively appreciated the arts council being iterative and responding to um, questions and queries and you know ideas from the sector about presenting this information but there was definitely a concern from a lot of people that that was all well and good and that helped people write the bids, but was that the criteria against which people were going to be assessed or reviewed? Um, mm. So I think for people reviewing them, I would want to know that they kind of fully understood some of that, you know, in that process of actually making really, you know, really important decisions for some of these organisations. Mm.
3: I think I might just say, look at turnover, of that organization before this look at the losses or the makeup of their income in a normal year and just try and be reasonable based on those things don't get hung up on what they say they're going to spend money on or not i'd really ask the assessment team and the decision panels to just look at normal turnover and what's been lost because of this and award a grant for six months according to those things and not be too hung up on those little details because ultimately those are the figures that are going to show what that organisation needs and has lost.
0: So I would, just to add to those excellent suggestions, try and get as much of the money out the door to as many organisations as possible. I don't believe that there are so many organizations out there who were on the brink of collapse before this. I just don't. I think most people were so viable. And the irony of the fact that organizations who were going through the process of weaning themselves off of subsidy and creating more sustainable models have been hit harder is even more of a testament to just getting as much money out the door to as many organizations as possible. I would also say to think about the mix, make sure that there is that balance there and that it's not just, you know, venues need lighting rigs. They need actors. They need so many different things. And that what I would hope to see is that if you mapped out an ecology of the sector, that there was support that went to all the different parts of it as a result of this. So those are some of the things that I would want them to do as assessors to really think about, yes, look at the detail of each application, but keep in mind the bigger picture all the time and the balance of of the fact that there are so many intricate, delicate bits to this ecology of work and we need to be able to support all of those. So, yeah. What about you, David?
1: Yeah, I, I think certainly the point about the, the guidance and considering when applications were submitted compared to when the guidance was updated. So we know obviously people that submitted earlier might not have seen that the uh, character limit for question two was extended or had drafted their response based on um, only having 2,000 characters when actually they had, had twice as many. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, so trying try to balance that out. And I think I think the point about the ecology and the wider mapping of that is a really key one, because I I was surprised reading some of the applications, uh, certainly from the more commercial parts of the the sector where you perhaps have a, a misconception about what they do and the role they play. Um, so I worked on a couple relating to um, artists agents, and. I think they get a bit of a bad rap, but actually when you really dig into the role they play um, and the fact that actually for a lot they are providing the, the artist development function that we see perhaps in other parts of the subsidised sector but don't necessarily see in um, the more commercial side, yeah, That are absolutely fulfilling that role. It was only through going through that you start to really understand where they fit in and just what is it at stake if they weren't there. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I hope they're able to look past some of those perhaps preconceptions and because a lot of them are going to be looking at parts of the sector they've never engaged with and never really, really dealt with before. I probably would want to say thank you because it's not a job I would want to do.
0: (laughs) Such a good point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you all. Because, you know, we, we, we acted as a mini assessment team, like, like has been said before. And it's, it's demanding, it's emotional, it's difficult, it's thrilling, it's lots of things, but yeah, it's not easy, it is not. And, and to be objective, to be fair, to be equitable in your decision making, to not allow how hungry you are or how tired you are by that point to affect or cloud your decision making, it's not an easy job, so hats off to them for sure
2: yeah i absolutely would not want to do it i wouldn't want to assess those bids i think yeah i think like you said you know sometimes you're just tired or you're fed up or you just read one that was really annoying and now you've got to come to the next one not being annoyed or you know or you need one of organisation you adore and they haven't presented their best case and then you've got to get your head out of that and into the next one. I, I honestly don't, I don't really know how they do it. I think it's quite remarkable.
3: It's funny, I'm like sitting here thinking, God, what kind of person am I? But I like, I would totally do it. <laughs> um <laughs> But I guess I've done, not in these circumstances. Oh, actually, no you did work at Arts Council, you know, during the coalition cuts. So I suppose I I feel like I have done it. I feel like I've been there. That's, I suppose, why my mind went, my mind jumped to the really simplified look at losses, look at turnover, because that is a way of like, I suppose, almost (laughs) dehumanising the applications and looking at the numbers. You know, numbers don't lie. That's the easiest way to make the decision in a way, but um, that would just be my approach. But yeah, hopefully they and I know that people ask council do this, you know they're really supportive to one another, and talking to each other about the benchmarking process that you as an individual assessor are going on with the tranche that you've been assigned is really important because you're all, you know, each individual person's only kind of looking at a sample. So discussing your sample with someone else's is really useful. So yeah, support each
2: other.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, a huge thank you to, to the three of you and fingers crossed to everyone that's submitted applications <laughs> and are waiting on the results. Uh, fingers crossed we get those results in that detail very soon.
2: Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Best of luck, everybody.
1: Huge thanks again to Lucy, Steph and Dana for joining me for this episode. And thank you also to all of the team at Arts Council England and all of the other funding bodies who are currently reviewing proposals and helping to distribute that Culture Recovery Fund money. That's just about it for this episode but given we're on the topic of grant funding I'm going to finish with a shameless plug and that's to say on the 4th of December of this year I'm going to be teaming up with the brilliant Fundraising Everywhere to bring a one-day international conference dedicated to grants fundraising. This is obviously a really tricky time for fundraisers and we know the pressure on applying for grants is only going to get tougher over the coming months so We're bringing together speakers from across the world to try and make sure fundraisers have the skills and the confidence to be really bold in the way they approach this challenge. And if that's not enough, we're also going to be putting our money where our mouth is and setting up our own foundation to give away real grants as part of the conference. So that process is open for applications now. So check out the website, which is fundraisingeverywhere.com forward slash trusts. For more information both on the grant giving program and the conference and we'll hopefully see you there in the meantime thanks very much for listening today look after yourselves and hopefully see you soon